0: Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache, but it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in, the software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, CTC focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get an exclusive 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout. Is the most hated sector finally getting some love? Hi everyone, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Jesse Felder, founder of Felder Investment Research. Hey Jesse, welcome back.
1: Hey Maggie, how you doing?
0: I'm okay. I'm okay. It's great to see you. So we just finished uh, the U.S. session for stocks, and we saw uh, them continue to rebound. Actually, it's a Russell that had the biggest gains, up two percent. Yeah, the others were modest, sort of hanging in there at the close. Uh, we saw bond yields, meanwhile, edge a little bit lower as investors there focused on a weaker than expected retail sales report. And I feel like we're kind of stuck in this pattern, Jesse, where we keep getting conflicting signals, or at least off the surface, it seems to be conflicting, you know, weaker than expected retail sales. But then, yet yeah, we get some pretty good earnings. So what's your sense of what's going on with the U.S. economy?
1: well i i think we are getting conflicting um signals that, you know that that's exactly what we're seeing and i and i think that what we we have to talk about what's priced into the markets versus what is likely to happen and i think right now i mean we've heard so much talk about a soft landing for months the last couple of quarters i really think we've gotten to the por- the, the point where we've priced in a no landing For the economy, where you know the inflation's going to come back down to the Fed's target, and the economy is just going to keep powering along, and that that looks to me that's kind of what's priced into markets. Now, the date, if you know, when the data starts to contradict that narrative is when we start seeing some interesting things play out in the market. So. If it starts to look like, you know, we get a retail sales number that maybe hints that, you know, maybe a hard landing isn't off the table, or you get the CPI report that suggests, well, maybe inflation isn't coming back down to the Fed's target. It starts to do damage to that soft landing or no landing narrative, uh, and and the markets are going to have to start reacting to that. And I think that that's a trend that that is going to continue or even grow over the next uh, several months or a couple quarters. Is we're going to continue to get data that contradicts that narrative, that maybe inflation stays a little hotter than expected, and growth comes in a little bit weaker than expected,
0: which is not a good combo, right? I mean, if you're at least if growth is going to be weaker than expected you would hope to see inflation moving in the same direction so that the fed can cut rates that's what sparked everything in november but you're right it seems like they're both moving in an undesirable direction let's talk about inflation for a second i mean we really thought that was you know that was buttoned up that it was moving in in to a disinflationary situation um it was looking really well behaved what, what's going on with inflation what do you see happening is this a temporary uh, sort of punch higher in some areas, or, or or is this something more worrying?
1: I think, you know, John Authors um, wrote an interesting piece, piece this week for Bloomberg, where he pointed out that, you know, when inflation really started to take off, the worry was that goods inflation was going to force employees to ask for wage increases in order to meet the growing cost of living. And those wage increases were going to create some type of a positive feedback loop uh, which would you know support demand and then support goods prices, and you get this wage-price spiral. And the latest CPI report um, suggests that that could be exactly what we're seeing right now, which is that if you look at that super core inflation, which is essentially the you know the the, the Fed points at as being representative of those wage you know forces underlying uh, inflation, it's suggesting that there's a huge jump there. And so I I'm interested to see. Do people start worrying again about this wage price spiral? Because it looks like that's still a major risk. Um, And I think, you know, you have to pay attention to what are these the longer term drivers of that, too. It's not just I think so many people are focused on, on the pandemic and the supply chain shortages and things. But I think when you look at things like deglobalization and the stress that that puts on the labor force here in the United States, that's an important dynamic. And pair that with demographics, right? We've seen the the baby boom generation really start to retire in waves. And especially when the stock market does well, you know, they say, great, you know, my retirement account is through the roof. I can now afford to retire. And so you have a shrinking workforce relative to the overall size of the population. At the same time, you're trying to reshore all this production. That is a really important inflationary force supportive of, of wages and, and a really hot you know, uh, labor market. So I think those longer term dynamics are kind of um not going away, right? They're they've only gotten more significant. And uh, you know, so I, I, there's not just kind of cyclical forces at work. they're those longer term dynamics that are I think are important to keep an eye on as well,
0: yeah. it's so important to talk about that backdrop, some of these big issues underneath. you know, it's I think what's confusing for people, and I think about this all the time is, we we sort of understand that especially when you're talking about reshoring right that's a that's a big change that that even if it's not deglobalization it's sort of you know sort of changing of spheres of influence or just making sure your supply chain has redundancy and isn't as stretched and vulnerable to even geopolitical events however you want to phrase that seems to really make sense and then yet you see so many headlines about layoffs you know companies are just very quick and willing to lay people off. That was a big change. And there's no such thing as job security anymore. Or they'll, or they'll take you from being staff to being contract, you know, to cut costs. So it it doesn't feel like there's any kind of uh, bargaining, you know, that that workers have that much ability to be able to really push for those wages. Is that Is that just because it feels that way and it's changing and it hasn't gotten around to everyone yet? Or is it a sort of divide on what part of the economy that you touch and that you're working in?
1: Yeah, I I think that's a really important uh, point. And I do think it really is what part of the economy are you talking about? Because if you're talking about healthcare. You know, the demand for labor and healthcare is huge. And you have to have people who are trained to do certain things. And it's difficult to source that labor right now. You look at even just, you know, uh people coming out of college with accounting degrees, right? There's the Wall Street Journal has done several articles about this and how CPAs are really struggling to keep up with uh, you know, the the demand for bookkeeping and tax work and stuff when there's nobody wants to get an accounting degree. And so you know you I think you have a lot of these areas of the economy where people, and you know, even just in the construction, um you know, uh, section of the labor market, right? we've I've heard a lot of talk about, you know, yes, home building has slowed down to a degree, but with all the infrastructure spending, those people might not be building houses, but they're being put to work building other things. And there's only so many of those people in the economy that are equipped yeah. and you know willing to do that work. And so I think in those specific areas where the labor demand is still, I mean, we talked about the demographic trend with, you know, baby boomers aging, retiring, putting a demand on the healthcare system, greater demand on the healthcare system at a time when that those people working within the healthcare system are shrinking as a, as a percentage of the overall, overall uh, population. Mm-hmm. And so I think those are areas, I mean, you can look at, there's, there's a number of them where where you need people that are skilled in certain areas and there's just we're just not we just don't have enough of them. And that that creates those wage pressures um, that we're seeing that are kind of rippling through the economy.
0: Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache. But it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, Crypto Tax Calculator focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. It's as simple as connecting your wallet, pulling in all your transactions, and following the automated suggestions to quickly and accurately calculate your tax obligations. Finally, 2024 is a year when crypto investors can do their taxes with speed and confidence. Make taxes this year easy and affordable with Crypto Tax Calculator. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get a 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting because it's, it, you know, whenever you're in transition, because we think about, you know, automation and robots and what that means doing, it's hard to know. It's just hard to figure out what's happening here. So I, I think it leads to some of that conflicting data you know, uh, my colleague, Andreas, dropped his latest steno signals uh, on our platform today. Check it out if you haven't, everybody. And I I think you were tweeting about that. And Andreas also warning about the risk of reacceleration um, of inflationary pressures. And he's focused on liquidity. And we know how important that is. We're... Where is this pressure? So, the, you mentioned wages. Where else is this pressure coming from? Because Bo just asked a question, and there's some great ones. I'll get to them, guys. Um, Jesse, I read Great Britain and Japan have fallen into recession with China and Germany already weak. How does this affect US markets? You know, So, what, what are you watching sort of globally that is either feeding or will help with inflation?
1: Well, I think one of the dynamics that that people maybe don't talk enough about is the weakness in the, the Chinese economy, right? The Chinese economy has struggled mightily for a couple of years now, and that's been an important disinflationary force, uh, right, that's helped us keep prices down and, and see prices disinflate here in the United States. Uh, you know, if the Chinese economy begins to start to show signs of life again and take off again and demand for com- for commodities and all these things start to take off, you know, that could be a real problem for, uh, you know, for the Fed. If, you know, the, if, you know, five and a half percent Fed funds rate is not going enough to bring uh, the the, you know, core PCE, their target back down to 2% in a sustainable way. And then you get you know the the uh, Chinese economy starting to to um, take off again. I you know I look at the commodities generally commodities markets and you see gas prices starting to go up again over the last few weeks pretty pretty significantly in in a strong way. Oil price looks to me like it's bottoming um, and could could head higher. The supply and di- demand dynamics um, demand keeps hitting you know record highs. For oil, right? There's this narrative out there, which is why I think there's so much bearishness around the energy sector. That demand is going to be a problem, <clears throat> but all signs suggest demand is hitting record highs. At the same time, as you know, supplies just aren't keeping pace. And so, if you get start to see a turnaround in the commodity sector, prices, you know, for those for these big important commodities start to take off again, that could exacerbate this reflation problem that you know could be potentially brewing.
0: Yeah, and Nixie, I think that was your question. Um XLE was up 2.75. Is this the forewarning that the market will start pricing in higher than ex- expected f- inflation numbers ahead? CPI and PPI. It sounds like maybe you you are watching that space, Jesse, for that.
1: Yeah, well, well before the CPI report came out, we saw break evens, you know, um, across kind of, you know, different time frames, break evens have been rising pretty strongly, suggesting that um, you know, the markets have been expecting that uh, inflation is probably going to head higher over the next, you know, I mean, I'm talking specifically, I I, I wrote a report last weekend highlighting the two-year break even, which suggests that, you know, it's closer to two and a half than to two, suggesting that the Fed is going to have a difficult time, you know, bringing bringing inflation back down to target. So I think you have a number of markets that have been pointing to this risk of reflation. Um, and and it's something that investors haven't been paying close enough attention to because I do think, you know, if you are pricing in, uh, you know, if you are investing based on a soft landing narrative, based on a no landing narrative, you're going back to that pre-pandemic paradigm of what worked in an era of ultra low interest rates. Well, it was tech stocks and, you know, all these types of things that, uh, you know, really suffer from higher discount rates, higher growth names and these types of things. If rates aren't going to go back down and we aren't going to see that pre-pandemic paradigm, then you're going to have to invest in a different way, and that probably points to things like energy, precious metals, and uh, even things like you know Chinese Chinese equities. Um, I thought it was really interesting to see you know Warren Buffett start to sell down you know Berkshire Hathaway sell down some Apple, and the only thing that Berkshire is buying, Occidental Petroleum and Chevron, right? Stan Druckenmiller, Duquesne. What's he doing? He sold all of his Apple, Amazon. What's he buying? He's buying Barrick uh, and Newmont Mining, gold miners. So you see, you know, some of the smart investors, I think, smartest guys on the planet, embracing adopting this. Okay, you know, the next bull market is maybe not going to be focused on the the same names that drove the last one.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting and. But that's why we started out talking about, and as you pointed out in your fantastic research pieces, the, the sectors that are the most hated are starting to get some love from you know these giants in the investment business. Um, so you know, I mean they, they have different decision-making calculations than we do. <laughs> Certainly they're playing with a lot yeah, more money than we have. <laughs>
1: and they can change their mind, you know. I mean, exactly. exactly. He, about it. he can change his mind at any moment. And, and exactly.
0: So exactly. So we do we do have to be careful um but you know still there's a that's really interesting so um Doug has a really great point and i want to bring this up and it's not weird and it's not um uh, it's actually a really smart question that we don't ask enough um he said this may sound weird but what's wrong with 3 to 4% inflation it seems like in the past industrial build out ie onshoring had inflation above 2% and was positive for the economy and the market it can inflation run we we had this sort of you know that we were more worried for all these years about deflation disinflationary you know tendencies can inflation run at 3 to 4% can the us economy handle something like that
1: well i mean it's i'm i'm not an economist so you know but i would just point out that uh, the, i think the the assumption behind that is the fed would Maybe not, maybe they'll have a difficult time sustaining a 2% target, but maybe they could sustain a 3%, 4% target. But I think the history of inflation throughout time, through the United States, through other major economies, is that it's very difficult to target it. Right. And as soon as you raise your inflation target from two to three to four, right? That, and I think this is why the Fed is really reluctant to even discuss this, is because it changes inflation expectations, right? Mm-hmm. And if you change inflation expectations and people start saying, okay, the Fed is no longer committed to bringing it down to two, I need to change the way I do business, the way I manage inventories, the way I way I purchase things. And that inflationary mindset could, on its own, um you know create uh, you know kind of a chain reaction through the economy where you you stimulate demand in a way that inflation doesn't just rise from 2 to 3 it rises from 2 to 3 to 5 to 7 to 8 and so that that inflationary psychology i think is is maybe the important most important piece to think about in terms of that and i think it's why the fed is most reluctant to even discuss a higher inflation target
0: yeah no absolutely um, but it's really interesting, Doug, and it's a point that we'll come back to because we're also coming out of this extraordinary period, right, where we had zero interest rates and we were more worried about a deflation. So, it, you know, people have to kind of adjust to this if it is a new reality. Um, and so, we're not really sure how much of the old model transfers and how much doesn't, and some of the unintended consequences or knock-on effects of of just a higher inflation, higher interest rate environment, even if it's moderately higher. So so it's a really, really smart question. Uh, so what what are you speaking of interest rates? Do you th- think the bond market has a big adjustment to do here? Jesse, we saw that we saw yields certainly come come up back up a lot from where they were, the lows they hit when everybody was pricing in seven rate cuts or six rate cuts. We've seen them come up and they're kind of now hovering right around, you know, four and a quarter. But do you think that we we have to go a lot higher? They're going to revisit something much higher in order to wrap our head around the idea that inflation may pick up again? Or how do you see the direction of yields? Where do you see them going?
1: I think, you know, I've, I've been for nine months now or so, I've been telling my readers that the 10-year Treasury yield is the most important chart in the world, right? This is the one everybody needs to be watching because- uh, it's still in an uptrend. I, I don't see any reason to believe uh, that you know rates have topped out and are ready to to go down in a, in a way that you know bond bulls would really be get excited about. Um, you know you you look at uh, momentum. Um, there's a, there's a, another chart that I've I've shared, which is basically just the price relative to the 40 week moving average, same thing as the 200 day moving average. And for you know, a few years now, Momentum has bottomed in a very clear range, and we've touched that range again recently, and rates turned higher again. And so as as long as momentum is going to remain above that level, I think the uptrend is intact. And and I think really, you know, it's interesting to me to see some, you know, uh, really successful, you know, financial reporters kind of make fun of the idea that supply and demand is really important to this market, but supply and demand is is, the, is maybe the most fun, important fundamental for any market. And with sub- tr- Treasury supplies growing so dramatically, and natural demand, you know, has limits, right? It's it's uh, I, I think where we, we've seen a lot of extra demand come from is from the basis trade, right? Hedge funds, you know, borrowing via uh, you know repo to buy, uh, you know. Uh, bonds in in mass massive leverage and and essentially arbitraging the difference between cash and futures, uh, you know I I can't even begin to imagine where Treasury yields would be without the basis trade right now, um, and as long as you know we we have that basis trade with without um, you know any kind of interruption, you know it's going to be difficult I think for rates to go up uh, you know rapidly. That said, you know, with so much supply coming on market, I think it is reasonable to be concerned about where does the demand come from, and it you know can basis can these hedge funds soak it all up, or um, households going to have to you know buy a lot more um, treasuries and things like they have been you know through the through uh, money market funds which you know buy T bills and all this kind of stuff. So I, I think this is maybe the most important thing to pay attention to with the 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 federal deficit, you know, so, so wide, right. We've really never seen outside of, you know, World War II, Mm. a time when the deficit was so wide during an economic expansion, it's really unprecedented. And so the, the, the amount of debt is growing at a really rapid rate, uh, the supply and, uh, and, and I think that, you know, so long as this yield, the 10 year yield uptrend remains intact from a technical standpoint, I think you have to be looking for, for higher highs.
0: We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, uh, which is going to you know really worry a lot of people and put some strain on the system. Um, and I want to talk about where you might see the worry. But we have a great question. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Um, which is which was from one of your notes again. Such a great great point. And I think. Uh, Paul picked up on this. um Jesse, can you comment on some of the Mag seven companies investing in their own customers who buy products from them and how that may be kind of influencing what's going on? you you made you made this great point about so-called vendor financing. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think it's part of a of a bigger trend. I, I think what we're seeing if you look at the earnings in the mag seven companies, I think we're seeing some late cycle trends, right? You're seeing that, uh, you know, what do companies do when demand starts to wane? I think in in this case, they've said, okay, we're going to cut, we're going to start layoffs, right? Because we need to protect protect profit margins. But we also need to try and find ways to goose the top line. And I think that a lot of this AI, um, you know, narrative was driven by a slowdown in the cloud business, and companies like Microsoft and you know Alphabet and Amazon needing needing to drive cloud revenue and you know some type of a narrative to uh, you know to hype hype something to drive cloud revenue so the you know we get the AI narrative and and tons of spending there but at the same time you know in order to protect profits they're also uh Extending the life of their servers, right? And these are accounting games that they're playing in order to make profits look better. And it's boosted the Mag 7 profits, I 10 to 20 billion over the last couple of quarters. It's not insignificant. But you always see these types of accounting games late cycle. Another thing that they're doing, right? And and, and NVIDIA may be the you know the most um, you know, kind of guilty of this is saying, okay, we need more people to buy, you know, in order to sustain the price of these $60,000 semiconductors, we need to, you know, create demand. How do we create demand? We're going to invest whatever it is, $2 billion into this startup and tell them we'll give you this $2 billion if you turn around and, and buy chips, you know, from a spend that $2 billion on chips. Microsoft is doing this with OpenAI. We'll invest $10 billion in you if you invest it right back into, you know, our, our cloud uh, business and so I think you see a lot of this kind of vendor financing, which is <clears throat> a way to boost the top line and create demand that wouldn't naturally be there. And so I think you have a lot of these different dynamics, um, whether it's you know vendor financing to support demand, accounting games to you know create pro- to boost profits, uh, and then layoffs right to try and protect profit margin. All these types of things are late cycle dynamics for the the earnings in these companies. And I think it's uh, important to kind of recognize that.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a great point. Such a great point. Wonderful research work there, because it's not something that we paid attention for. But you're right; we've seen versions of this right uh, throughout history when we get to this point in this cycle. Um, but it's 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 super important because you're you know you're seeing these flashes and these revenues, and you know of course you think the, the stock's flying. So let's go back to this idea of interest rates hitting higher highs and the sort of knock-on consequences from that. How are you thinking about commercial real estate here? Because, you know, it was the big worry, the big sort of ticking time bomb, and then it kind of fell off everyone's radar. But but just anecdotally, I'd say in the last few weeks, we've had a lot of people coming on our air uh, and talking about being concerned about it, sort of still worried about, you know, The regional banks. And yes, they don't necessarily say it's systemic. Can the central bank ring fence issues with it? Yeah, probably. But the idea that it's just this slow moving train wreck that's just going to continue to cause a drag. Um, And if you're talking about interest rates being higher, presumably that'll put even more pressure on that sector. How are you thinking about commercial real estate here?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's not just commercial real estate, it's the entire credit cycle. I think you have so many companies, real estate focused or not, that have said, you know, we're going to just hold out and and pray for lower interest rates you know for for these refinancing cycles right and so i think you know that uh, you know, a lot of companies and and real estate ones have have been hoping that we were going to see inflation come right back down to the fed's target the fed's going to cut interest rates long term rates are going to come down and say okay now we can refinance this debt um if you know, and this is what the markets I think are starting to wrestle with, is if inflation is coming back and that we're going to get higher for longer interest rates, which is something people haven't talked about uh, for the last several months, um, then it means that there are going to be more and more problems with credit. Right? We're not going to get get you know the ten-year yield back down into the twos or something, and uh, you know narrow spreads so that it's e- easy for for these companies to refinance. I think you know the real estate is the most obvious um of of all of these problems because you know real estate is 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 so basically just focused on cap rates right what's the cap rate on on the real estate and you you raise the cap rate and the, the value of the property comes down and that's what we've seen with a lot of these office properties selling for you know 30 cents 40 cents on the dollar um and and so I, I think, you know, I've been looking at actually some of these banks because the, the insider activity is something that I, I watch very carefully. Saw so insiders buying in in uh, you know New York Community Bank, Columbia Banking System is one that I've been looking at because I used to bank with Umqua Bank, which is one of their brands up in the Northwest, and we've seen some good insider buying. And but but you look and you see that uh, you know commercial. Um, loans, these types of commercial real estate loans are, you know, three times their total total equity. And so it, you know, it doesn't take a lot of distress to really create a problem for these types of banks. And there's a good article in Bloomberg about this, where, you know, the the regulators are really looking at those companies that I think have, you know, three times their equity capital in these types of commercial real estate loans, and the, that loan portfolio has grown 50% over the last, you know, several years through the pandemic, and those are the ones that are most at risk. I think there's about two dozen of them, yeah. and so I, I, I think that, you know, yeah, the, what we've seen with New York Community Bank is probably the start of something, you know, a, a bigger problem. And, and that's not—I'm not going out on a limb to say that—that um, that more of these banks are going to, you know, have issues. I don't think it's systemic um you know uh but i do think we're probably going to see more of these issues especially if interest rates aren't going to come down pretty quick
0: yeah and uh jim carson was on with us yesterday made the point that if if you remember the savings and loan crisis it took two decades to mop that mess up you know it takes a long time and especially when you're not sure what these buildings are going to be you know there're just some buildings that are not going to have the va- the the tenant rates that they had and you know it's a big change that we're going to need a solution to much like the malls. Um, Mm. and everyone's trying to figure that out. So it's a, it's kind of, this going to be this big dark cloud that hangs around for a while. Um, so what are you thinking about? We'll, we'll end on oil because you were talking about some of the investors buying it. Do you expect to see a rotation? Is that a sector that you like? And where do you think, where do you think oil prices are going? If that demand is there, um, it's just yeah. that, you know, we haven't seen the price action. What, what do you see happening in that patch?
1: I, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, I mentioned the supply to demand dynamic um, in the oil market. And to me, it looks like there's a, there's a mismatch where demand keeps hitting, you know, record highs and supplies just aren't keeping up. It looks to me very similar to the early 2000s, which was the start of the last major super cycle for oil prices. I think, Probably we're in the early innings of another long-term cycle for commodities and oil prices generally. Um, what's amazing to me is that these things are so out of favor, even though they're generating such amazing returns. I mean, take Occidental Petroleum for example. It's just you know one that Berkshire Hathaway has been buying. I don't know twenty million shares uh, a quarter or something, um, and I think they you know Buffett owns two hundred million shares or something now. Uh, Trades seven and a half times free cash flow, right? I mean that's 12, thirteen percent cash on cash return. Uh, I think it's very telling that you know that's the only thing Berkshire is buying right now. It's essentially Occidental and Chevron. Uh, I think it's you know probably a twofold thing. it's it's a uh, you know they're cheap stocks, right? Buffett is a famous value investor. but I think it's also a very very important hedge. Uh, for a portfolio that if you do own, I mean, they've got 50% of the portfolio in Apple and these other things. And if inflation is going to stay higher than uh, than people expect, you need to have some type of inflation hedge in the portfolio. I know he's owned silver in the past. I don't think there are any precious metal investments that he could buy with the amount of capital he needs to put to work. And so energy is kind of really the only area where he can do that. And I think that's what they're doing over there at Berkshire is, is making sure that let's buy some cheap stocks that have great free cash flow yield and will act as a nice inflation hedge in the years to come.
0: Yeah, the barbell, right? Um, because it's um, it's so compelling. Some of the tech is compelling. And if you have a long view, you can see why that's interesting. But you know, are you protected enough? Um, and it doesn't sound like what you're saying that the 60-40 is back based on the fact that we could see. So we we still sounds like we're in for a rough ride with bonds.
1: I, you know, I I personally think, you know, there are times when financial assets uh, work really well. There are times when real assets work better. And I think what we've seen for the last, you know, 10 plus years at least, uh, you know, is that financial assets were the way to go. I I think this new bull market, um in front of us is more likely to be focused on real assets um commodities precious metals um these types of things uh you know typically that's that's what works best when inflation um does you know end a disinflationary Trend and go into something uh you know something different I think that's that's the environment we're in and so it makes sense to to focus on real
0: assets. Fantastic stuff. Jesse, so great to have you on. Fantastic insight. And thank you for sharing all your good research with us. We love it.
1: Always great to talk with you, Maggie. Thanks for having me back.
0: Thanks so much. Uh, before we go, an exciting announcement. We are hosting a crypto gathering. Don't F this up edition. It's next week, February 22nd and 23rd. It is free. Just sign up at slash crypto gathering. We've got a lot of good guests. Here's Raoul to give you a little more info. Please don't fuck this up. When well, we've got such a massive opportunity in crypto, we become our own worst enemies. When the bull market truly starts, you end up losing your minds, doing all the wrong things, and end up poorer than when you started, or just not capturing it. Anyway, I'm serious about trying to help you not fuck this up. And the crypto gathering is all about that. Two amazing, fun filled days of learning about how to get this right. That's on February the 22nd, 23rd. And there'll be panels, Q&As, interviews. Come and join us. It's free. Register at realvision.com forward slash crypto gathering. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto gathering. And come and help yourself not fuck this up. I'll see you there. We hope you enjoyed this episode. At Real Vision, we arm you with the expert knowledge, time-efficient tools, and a powerful network To help you succeed on your financial journey, get a taste of financial freedom with our free offer at realvision.com forward slash free.